Shabbat Shalom. And welcome to our B'nai Shalom broadcast here at Lion and Lamb Ministries. My name is Ephraim Judah. And from our family to yours, thank you for inviting us into your home each and every week. Uh, a couple of announcements that we have for our service this week. Um, we are coming up to the end of 2017. And uh, we have a couple of deadlines that we want to inform you about, about our events that we do throughout the year. Um, December 31st is going to be the last day that uh, we have the early early bird registration for the Feast of Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, for our conference event that we're holding in Norman, Oklahoma. You can go to the website shavuotevent.com and you can get registered for that. If you register after it's already 2018, the registration cost goes up. So we'd like to encourage you to get signed up now and uh, look forward to joining us at that conference. Also, on when the clock strikes midnight there on January 1st, um, that is when we open up registration for Camp Yeshua, our Messianic Youth Summer Camp. We have a wonderful time hearing about all the youth who uh, sign up right when it opens. And last year we had the close registration after 16 hours with the youth with their zeal to get signed up to join us for that event and so we're definitely uh, looking forward to all the youth there so we want to encourage you um, you could kind of make an event out of it you could register for Shavuot before midnight and register for Camp Yeshua right after if that's what you'd like to do um, so we'd like to see you at our conference events uh, that are coming up for 2018 uh, also a special announcement we have for uh, not only this week but next week we have a special guest teacher Eddie Chumney is in town here at Lion and Lamb Ministries and he's going to share with us uh, for this service and also for next week's service. So we're looking forward to a wonderful Arab Shabbat service. Once again, we thank you for inviting us into your homes. If you would now join us as we usher in the Sabbath with the Kiddush and the family blessings. Welcome. Please join our family as we usher in the Sabbath. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by his commandments, and has commanded us to be a light unto the nations, and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Let's see the blessing over the cup. Baruch Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Boreh Rehagafen Amen Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. See the blessing over the bread? Hamutzi lekim min haaretz 
We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atah Eloheinu melech haolam, hamutzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed are thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Now, husbands, let's, let's bless our wives together. Dear Heavenly Father, again, I thank you so much for my wife, Father, and the blessing she is to me. Um, I thank you for the strength that I receive through her, Father, uh, from you. And I just praise you for her, for her beauty, Father, just for um, the goodness that she is, Father. The way that she reads your word, Father, and spends time in your word, Father, I get to learn about you, Father. It motivates me to do the same. Thank you, Father. We can be an encouragement to one another, that we can be a, a team that functions and works through life together. I think that she's um, a pillar of strength for me when I'm weak, and I get to be the same thing for her, Father. I praise you, Father. Thank you that you reveal you so much of yourself um, through my wife, and I just rejoice to know this, Father. Thank you for your continual goodness, Father. Thank you. She, she sustains our home and takes care of our child. And for many more to come. Thank you, Father, again for your faithfulness to me, Father, through my wife. Um, thank you, Father, you give me the ability to care for her as well. And praise you, Father, and I thank you for all your continual goodness to us. In Yeshua's name, Amen. Let's bless our sons. <laughs> you ever be. 
may he bring you home unto the land prepared for you. May God bless you and grant you long Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michmocha. Michmocha Adonai. Michamocha nedahar bachodesh Nohorat echilot Ohosefelei Ohosefelei Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, Lord, there is none else. You are awesome in praise, doing wonders, O Lord, who is like you, O Lord. Amen. And now the blessing of the Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech ha'olam, asher natan lanu et derech ha'yeshua b'mashiach yeshua. All together. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshamru. Veshamru v'nei Israel et ha'shabat, lasot et ha'shabat ladortam berit olam. B'nei avayom, b'nei Israel, odhit le'olam, kishashet yamim asadonai, et hashmaim, v'et haretz avayom hashvi'i shabbat, v'yinafash. All together. The children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. But I'll turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Baru 
שם כבוד מלכותו לעולם ועד. ישוח המשיח הוא אדוני. Oh Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be his name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, he is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Adonai ochecha, b'chol levavcha uv'chol nashicha, uv'chol meodecha. Ve'heyu ha'devarim ha'aleh a'asher nechim mezavcha, ha'yom alevavcha. V'shin nantam l'avanecha. All together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abba, we magnify you here in this place. And we declare that there is no God like you, no king like you. Father, all we can say is that our lives belong to you. We honor you. We love you. You're our all in all. And Father, we magnify your holy name here in this place.
and would you tell him this? Oh God, I need you and I need you. Oh God, I need you and I need you. Be my all and all. I'm desperate for you. I'm desperate for you. Heal my broken Make me yours, make me
mon guise oh god i need you and i need you we say hey need you just you king of glory all we need is you marukashon Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Please, if you would, join with me, turning in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 44, holding your finger there at verse 18, where a Torah portion entitled Vayagash will begin for this week. As you are opening the scripture, I will do the blessing before the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher b'charbanu mikol ha'amim Venatan lanu et torato Baruch atah Adonai nonten ha-torah Amen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe who has chosen us from among all peoples and has given us your Torah Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah Amen as I said, our Torah portion is entitled Vayagash, which comes from verse 18 of Genesis chapter 44, where it says, Then Judah came near to him and said, If you remember where we are in our story, this is when Joseph, incognito, he's been appointed to the viceroy of Egypt. He is basically the king of Egypt and the king of the known world at this time, second only to Pharaoh. And this is the story in which the brothers had come to Egypt to get food because there had been a great worldwide famine and if you remember our story it was through Joseph it was through the interpretation of dreams that God had taken Joseph a man who was once thrown into a pit who was once falsely accused thrown into prison has been raised up to be second only to Pharaoh as the viceroy of Egypt and that he through his through God God's provision through his interpretation of dreams has been given the means to save the entire world. He's gathered up food for seven years and seven years of plenty there in Egypt. And then has be, it has begun the seven years of famine. And our scripture tells us that this was in the second year of the famine that the sons were coming to buy bread here at this time to buy grain from Egypt. And we, if you remember the story, the brothers came. And Joseph recognized them. They didn't recognize him. They thought their brother was no more, long gone, sold as a slave to Egypt. They didn't think they were ever going to see him again. Yet Joseph recognizes them. And then Joseph, through a series of things, he remembers the dream that he had where his brothers would bow down before him. So there's a series of things that takes place. He calls them spies. He then holds Simeon in prison for a period of time and sends the brothers back with food. He stashes their money back in their bags and they think that, you know, something, something horrible has happened, that they still have their money. They have this food. They go back to their brother or to their father, Jacob. And he tells them that they're not to return unless they bring their younger brother, Benjamin. This being the direct brother of Joseph, the brother of his mother, Rachel. 
And so when it comes time, they need to buy food again. They tell Jacob, we've got to go back. We've got to buy food, but we can't go without Benjamin. And if you remember, Jacob not wanting to let Benjamin go, he already lost one son of his beloved wife, Rachel, and that he could not let go. If, if something were to happen to Benjamin, he says that he was, his soul would go down to the grave with sorrow, that he would just be devastated, if you will, if something were to ever happen to Benjamin. And if you remember, you know, Reuben's got kind of a silly idea. Well, if anything happens to Benjamin, you can kill my sons, and that would make everything all better. I, not, not really, <laughs> because it's like we don't want to lose a son and then lose some grandsons. But Judah's the one that steps up. Judah, the one being who, who has gone through some, some growing of his own through the loss of his own two sons as well. And we hear about that whole story between him and tomorrow. He knows what this experience is like to have lost two sons. He goes to Jacob, his father, and he says to him, I will be a surety for Benjamin. I will stand in the gap. If anything were to happen to Benjamin, I will take the blame, the punishment, so that he could go free. And it was that laying down of one's life that is the thing that where you see Judah kind of come full circle from how he treated his brother to now how he's going to then take care of his brother and watch over him and protect him and be a substitution, if you will, for his brother should any calamity come upon him. So we remember the story. They go back to Egypt. And Joseph, uh, once again, the brothers don't recognize him. They, he throws a great banquet. Very excited. He treats Benjamin extra special kind of thing. That, that Because his love for his brother Benjamin. The brothers don't know this. or don't know why this is. But this is what he does. Then when he sends them away with food, with their money back. And then he plants a cup, something about a possession of his, and he puts it in Benjamin's bag, and he's, you can see him playing the game. Joseph orchestrates all of this. And he sends then his servants, who understand what's going on, to go and, and retrieve the cup that the brothers don't know that they actually have. And so then when the servants arrive to the brothers and say, Some, but something is missing, something has been stolen, they, the brothers stand up and say, it's, it's kind of funny the way that if you, if you reread it here at the start of uh, chapter 44, it's funny the brothers say, it's like, whoever has the cup, that person shall die, and the rest of us will be slaves and serve you forever if, we, if, if what we have has is, is been found in our possession, kind of thing. They're, they're completely, they, they believe they're not guilty of this, so much so that they'll say, you can kill the one who has it. And The servants of, of Joseph, they say this, they say, no, nothing like that. We just, wherever the cup is, that person will become a slave, and the rest of you can go free. That's what they say. So then they go, they search the bags, they search all the ten brothers, there's no cup to be found, and then lo and behold, they come to Benjamin. They open his sack, and wouldn't you know it, the cup is found in Benjamin's sack. And all the brothers at that point, you know, just that sinking feeling where they had this issue with this viceroy of Egypt trying to get food, trying to get bread, and, and one, of, one of the brothers were thrown into prison, and they had to bring Benjamin, and Judah had to stand in the gap to get Benjamin here so that they could get the food. Only for now, everything is for now. So they start going back to Egypt. And now they just want to take Benjamin. They say, oh, look, this is where the cup was. This is what's stolen. And this is who we found it. We'll take Benjamin back and then you can go back up to, to where you're from. But the brothers, not wanting to face their father, they said, no, I'm not, I'm not going back up there without Benjamin. We're, we are not going to return to our father Israel if Benjamin is not with us. This is exactly what he feared. This is exactly what he, this is why he wouldn't let Benjamin go. 
They'd rather stay in Egypt and face this viceroy that keeps dealing harshly with them rather than going back and facing their father. So they come back. Now, what's Joseph doing here? What's Joseph doing? It's fascinating when you look at this whole story. Now, he loves his brother. It's almost like I was always curious if he wanted to do this so he could keep Benjamin with him. That maybe he'd then bring Benjamin in, he'd tell him the whole thing or whatever, and that he's kind of he's kind of toying with his brothers, that that kind of thing. What is Joseph's motivation here? And we don't really know exactly, but we do know that he had the power to do whatever he wished with his brothers. His brothers threw him into a pit, sold him into slavery. He could have done anything to them, but he withheld any of that judgment. Some of us, many of us, might not have the same strength that Joseph did to withhold punishment, to be able to forgive those that wronged you, that he, he could have just, he, could have, he had the power to end them at any point in time, in any way that he wanted to. But he didn't. It's kind of fascinating that he did that, that he's, he does have this compassion. or he, It's almost like he was waiting for the right time. Almost like he was waiting for the time before he could see the brothers, before they were ready. See if they've learned their lesson, if you will. That's the other thing he had the power to do. He had the power to, to almost teach them something through this process. He knows all of the glory belongs to the Lord. The interpretation of dreams, what the, what the Lord has done for him, the, to, to raise him up here in Egypt. I almost believe that Joseph was just simply waiting for the right time until he could see that their bro- his brothers had learned something through this process. That maybe they were repentant in their hearts. Maybe they were sorry for the way that they treated him back, back that many years ago. That's what I want to think. I, I do believe that that's, that's what Joseph was doing. So when they, they, they all come back together here. And now this is when Judah, this is now where our Torah portion begins. Judah now steps up. He stands in the gap for his brother and he stands and keeps his word, the word that he kept to his father. And I love this passage of scripture. It's one of those ones that's just poetic and it's beautiful and, it, and it, it's another one of those passages that kind of give me chills every time that I read it. And I love these words when Judah truly uh, with a repentant heart, with, with a redeemed uh, uh, sense of doing righteousness from everything that took place with him. He stands up. These are the words that he says. He comes near to this Egyptian. He doesn't know is Joseph. He comes near to him and he says these words. Then Judah came near to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word to my Lord's hearing. And do not let your anger burn against your servant, for you are even like Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father. An old man and a child of his old age who is young. His brother is dead and he alone is left of his mother's children. And his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, the lad cannot leave his father for if he should leave his father, his father would die. But you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall see my face no more. So it was when we went up to your servant, my father, that we told him the words of my Lord. And our father said, go back and buy us a little food. But we said, we cannot go down for if our youngest brother is with, is with us, we will, we will go down. For we may not see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. 
And the one went out from me, and I said, Surely he's been torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. But if you take this one also from me, and calamity befalls him, you shall bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Now therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, it will happen when he sees the lad is not with us, that he will die. So your servants will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. For your servant became a surety. He's talking about himself now. Became a surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me? Lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father. It's an impassioned speech here from Judah. Speaking to this man, showing him that he will take him instead. Take him. It's, it's almost like realizing when the cup was found in their possession, they had no, there was no more excuse for the brothers. There was nothing that they could say. They were guilty. Whether they figured out how it got there, it didn't matter. If you remember, what is it? Possession is nine-tenths of the law. Is that what they say? That if the stolen goods are found in their possession, he's guilty. He has nothing. He has no excuse. He has to stand there and plead guilty to what, he, what, what was done. And so he stands up here and he stands and he says, I will be a substitute. Take me instead for the sake of my father. Judah is not doing this plea for his own sake. He's giving up himself for this, to become a slave to, to the viceroy of Egypt. He's actually not even doing it for his brother. His brother is simply tied up into the life of his father. The reason why he's doing it is for the sake of of Israel his father that's why he's doing this it's for his father's sake it's not for him it's not for a brother it's not for this but it's only for his father if you look at this and you, and you think about it when we look at our heavenly father when we look, look at the Lord when we figure out in our lives anything that we do anything that we decide to do with our lives why do you do what you do why do you choose to say what you're going to say act the way you're going to act do you do it for your own benefit? Do you do it for yourself so that you are raised up so that you continue to live a longer life? Well, that's called selfishness. That's what, that's what we call that spiritually. We do encourage people to do something for others, to lift somebody else up, you know, and, and, and to do something for, for a brother. And that's good. It is. But truly, the reason why anyone should ever do anything is for the sake of their God and for their Heavenly Father. That's why you should do what you do. It's because the, it's for the glory of the Lord that we breathe, that we, that, that we, it's by His breath that we even live each moment of every single day. And that's the reason why we should do anything in our lives. And that's the reason why Judah is saying these things. It's not for his sake, not even for his brother's sake, but it's for his father, whom he loves, who gave him life. This is why he's doing this. When you see Joseph's response... Joseph can't contain himself anymore when he sees his brother Judah stand in the gap and say these words. He can't contain himself anymore. I almost think Joseph was, he's toying with them a little bit. He'd like to spend a little more time with his brother Benjamin. He's kind of showing them, you know, teaching his brothers a lesson or something. But when he hears his brother Judah speak of his father, 
The father whom he loved, the father who loved him, gave him the coat of many colors. They, he, 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 he raised him up above all of his brothers. When he remembers his father, this is when he can't contain himself anymore. Genesis chapter 45. Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, make everyone go out from me. That's all of his servants, all of the Egyptians, all, uh, everyone that, that was there that could see this. He, he cast them out of the room. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He's standing there alone. You got 11 brothers standing there and one guy that looked like an Egyptian. Here. And he wept aloud and the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? The first words out of his mouth, he's revealing to him. It's not this, it's, it's not a ha ha, I got you guys. It's not a, I'm Joseph and this is what I did, I'm retelling the story. His first impassioned question to the brothers is, is my father still alive? Because he remembered his father. Judah saying that it's like if Benjamin's not with him, his life is tied up in the life of Benjamin. Benjamin's now being hauled back back to Egypt. Or it's like what, if his life is so tied up to the life of Benjamin, then what calamity and what stress is coming upon Jacob, his father, Israel, that at this time that his brother is not with him by his side? He's almost reminded it's all like something could happen to his father while none of the brothers are there. None of the, those brothers are with their father standing by him, including the, the, son, the brothers and the sons that he loves. And his first thought is, is my father still alive? That's an amazing thing that it's like, that's sort of like the revelation almost to Joseph. And he, so there's a couple of things. One, he remembers his father. Two, he sees his brother Judah standing in the gap for his brother that he had learned his lesson for how he mistreated a brother at one point in time. Now will lay down his life for one. That's what, maybe that's what Joseph was waiting for. Maybe that's what Joseph was waiting to see if they had learned their lesson. <coughs> Last week I talked about how I related the experience with Joseph and his brothers. And Joseph, his life is, is so much tied to the life of Yeshua and the testimony of Yeshua the Messiah. And that I, I was relating to how this is a prophecy of the end of the age. When the Messiah, Yeshua, who is not recognized by his brethren, by his kin, and I'm talking about... Judaism, mainstream Judaism, that we believe Yeshua was a Jew and that there is, there's Judaism that does not believe in Yeshua to be the Messiah. They're looking for the Messiah, they just don't believe Yeshua of Nazareth was that Messiah. And that Yeshua has now gone into, gone into the world through his disciples, through the Great Commission, and now everything that is associated with Yeshua and Christianity now looks like the rest of the world and looks very worldly to those that are still Jewish, that, that are a part of Judaism. And so then we're talking about at the end of the age when Yeshua would reveal himself to Judah. Well, when will Judah learn that Yeshua of Nazareth was the promised Messiah? When? When will we see that happen? When will we see that great reconciliation? We, us who are Messianic, we, we see that. We, we believe in Yeshua as the Messiah, and we have a great heart and love for Israel and the Jewish people. And we, want to, we wish that there would be a revelation within their hearts and in their minds to see the Messiah. 
to see that man. You know the man that they, they talked bad about, the ones that it was the, it was the um, religious leaders at the time that, that crucified him and put him in the grave, put him in the pit, treated him harshly. We want to see that revelation of that Yeshua was the promised Messiah. We want them to see that. When will that happen? We don't know. Is it when they'll, is, is Judaism or the Jews not ready to realize that? Yeshua, we believe Yeshua is God. Yeshua has the power. Yeshua could reveal himself to them at any time. Just like Joseph could have done whatever he will with his brothers. But he waited until a certain time. When will Yeshua reveal himself to all the Jews, to all the people and bring all of Israel back together? When will he unify that? I don't know. Maybe Judah's not ready yet. Maybe Yeshua is, and God is waiting for just the right time. Until maybe they've learned, uh, maybe there's a lesson to be learned. Or maybe they're just waiting for the right time in which God the Father will be remembered. And it's like, we, it's time God and His will is ready for this to take place. We are looking forward to that time and that future revelation. And when he reveals himself, Judaism will stand and they will be guilty. They'll stand with a great deal of shame. Immediately he'll flood back into their mind every memory of everything they ever said or did to Yeshua. Or said about him. In the same way that these brothers stood here. How did they feel when Joseph revealed himself? First of all, they're, they're, they're feeling guilty. They're feeling horrible because they're getting hauled back to Egypt because something was... Stolen was in their possession. Then he reveals himself as Joseph, and then suddenly all those memories come back of what they did to him. They, at that point, were in a great deal of fear. We're in a great deal of, 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 it's all like, now we're in trouble. We thought we were in trouble before, and it just got worse. Because this guy that we sold to Egypt, our brother, actually has the power to do whatever he will with us. The thing is, that the words of Joseph, though, are, are amazing and poignant. He says, don't worry that you sold me into Egypt. It's because of this that I was able to deliver and provide salvation and food for the rest of the world in the midst of a complete and total worldwide famine. If you had not sold me into Egypt, we all would have perished in this famine. Because no one would have stood up, no wise man would have stood up and saved all the grain and been able to save the whole world. I like to think that that's kind of how Yeshua works as well. Why did Yeshua have to die? Why did he have to be crucified? Why did, he, why did that have to happen? Why couldn't he just come and usher in the messianic era when he came the first time? It's because the world wasn't ready. The world wasn't, because a great, terrible judgment upon the rest of the world was coming at some, at some time. Because he died, because the testimony of him raising from the grave... And being the Messiah and ascending to heaven, because of that testimony, word got out. Word got out to, to, to everyone through the Great Commission into the Middle Ages until we get today where Christianity is the largest religion in the entire world. And there is a majority of people in this world that know or have heard of Yeshua the Messiah. That through that knowledge and through hearing that, that there are a great many more souls saved than just the Messiah showing up 2,000 years ago when the population of the world was, was much smaller and ushering the Messianic era then. That would have been great. But think of how much greater 
it will be now with how many souls that can be saved through the testimony of Yeshua, through the Great Commission, through all of the teachings of Yeshua the Messiah into the world. We all can be saved now. And an immeasurable amount of people. No man can count the amount of salvation that comes through that. And we can see that same pattern of Yeshua and his testimony and the testimony of Christianity and people who believe in the salvation that God can provide. We can see that same thing happen here with Joseph and his brothers. And that because Joseph, because the things befell Joseph, he was able to, his ability to save became immeasurable. It's something that we can be encouraged by, that we can be strengthened by as we see and read these stories and that we remember Yeshua and his salvation that he provides to us. Joseph, you know, there was a great deal of reconciliation. Benjamin was, you know, as shocked as, as anybody. They fell on each other. They wept together. They talked to, they, they, he, he told them the whole story of what was going on. Pharaoh hears about this. Pharaoh hears about this thing, but this is the, this is the good Pharaoh. This is the Pharaoh that Joseph was good friends with. And he says this, and it was a great time of rejoicing. Here's the thing you also got to remember. Pharaoh knew Joseph was Hebrew. Not all of Egypt knew that Joseph was Hebrew. Not all of Egypt knew that this was some Hebrew boy from the land of Canaan that was providing all of this. Only a few people were in the know on that. But Pharaoh, knowing, recognizing the Spirit of God in Joseph... He rejoiced when, when there was this reconciliation of the whole family. And now what we have to do is we're looking forward to the time in which Joseph is now going to be revealed as alive to his father, Israel. And so Pharaoh actually says, here, send, take, take all these cards, take all these gifts, go and get your father. I, apparently Joseph couldn't leave Egypt. That's as far as we can tell here in the scriptures, that Joseph was unable to leave and go back to the land of Canaan. Maybe it would have been too obvious, all the Egyptians would have seen their leader, their de facto leader, leaving the land right at the time when everybody needs grain or buying grain and they can only go to Joseph for that grain. So Joseph was unable to leave, but he sends the brothers with these carts and with these gifts to go to uh, Jacob. And they go back to him and they show up and they, and they, they arrive to Jacob with all these carts and all of these things. And they go to Jacob and he says, Joseph is still alive and he is the governor of Egypt. He is the leader of the world. Joseph is still alive. Jacob's heart stood still. He, would, he couldn't believe that. He saw the coat. He saw the blood. He saw all of those things. But then when he sees the gifts, when he sees the provisions, when he sees the, the blessing showing up at his doorstep, it says this. It says, Israel saw and he said, it is enough. My son is still alive and I will see him before I die. What an amazing reconciliation. You can just believe how wonderful a feeling that from someone who was, was fearful of, of being in sorrow, going down into the pit, into the grave with sorrow because of Benjamin, that... He now that it's like that there's been a resurrection of life, if you will, in Jacob's mind, in Israel's mind, Jacob or Joseph, who once died, has been resurrected. That's something else that you can relate to the story of Yeshua and compare that to Joseph. So we have the story here as our portion continues here in chapter 46. And this is where we have the uh, very curious passage of all of Jacob, his family, the genealogy of Jacob as they travel down to Egypt. And it lists every single name of every single child that came from the lineage, from the loins of Jacob. 
And it lists all of these names. Uh, in, it's done in a certain way where there are 70 people that it says that went down to Egypt. Now, the number 70 obviously has all kinds of, of symbolism and, and prophetic uh, uh, symbology to it. That we're still trying to... It's like how somebody wants to fit this into prophecy. Um, it's, it is very interesting that there's that Jacob is going to journey to Egypt. He's going to meet with Pharaoh. And then Joseph is actually going to tell him, here, this is what's going to happen. We're going to make this land, the land of Goshen, down in Egypt. And we're going to set that aside for you. That's where you're going to come and dwell. And if you want to do some more end-time prophecy comparisons, I'm reminded of the time in which it says that there will be a place in the wilderness set aside for the woman, for Israel, for their protection. That there's more ties to prophecy here that, uh, that one could go into that I'm running out of time. My time is running short to be able to go into all of that. And our portion also continues here uh, as it finishes up, talking about how Joseph continues to deal with the famine. There were still five more years of famine. That was the other thing that he told to his father, the messenger sent to his father, and says, this famine is not going to end anytime soon. Nobody else knew about this seven-year famine. Joseph and and Pharaoh knew this, but the rest of the world didn't know how bad and severe this famine was going to go. There were still five more years of famine. That's one of the reasons why he said, come to Egypt. This is where I can help you. If you stay up there, we're just going to have to keep sending food and you're going to have to keep coming back and getting it so there's going to be a great famine and what this does in the last part of our passage here in chapter 47 talks about how the money fails there's no more money to buy the grain and so then people had to then sell their livestock all the egyptians all the people of the world had to sell their livestock to so that they could be fed in the famine and it was still so severe that then pharaoh doesn't need any more livestock he then buys all of their land and he buys all of their possessions basically save for the priests of of egypt and so what we have here at the end of our portion are almost the seeds being planted for all of Egypt to basically become the world power that owns all the people, owns all the land, owns all the livestock of the entire world at this time. And you see this sort of like build that that's how the whole world is preserved here in Egypt. Only for when we get into the book of Exodus, then we'll see the great Exodus out of Egypt. But our, the seeds of that are planted here uh, at the end of our portion here. The last thing I want to talk about is this. Uh, Many people uh, talk about and look at the 70 names and the 70 people listed here that went down with Jacob. And if you count up all the names, there's actually, you, you can only count 69 names. There's one name of one person that is not listed here. And the, uh, the trick here and the key to that is in verse 15 of chapter 46 where it says that all of the uh, daughters of Leah came down. Well, there's only one daughter listed there, and that's that's Dina. That's the actual daughter of Jacob. But it turns out there was one woman that was born after they arrived to Egypt, and it was Yocheved. It was the granddaughter of Levi that would become the mother of Moses. And that's one of the things, so that's one of the little tricks here. But then when you also go to the New Testament and the testimony of Stephen, he says that 75 persons came down to Egypt. Even though we have 70 listed here, Stephen says 75 persons came down to Egypt. Now, how does he get 75 persons? Well, in the names that are listed, it does not count Jacob. It does not count Leah, Bilhah, or Zilpah, his wife. So that's four that names that are unaccounted for. If you remember Rachel, she had already passed away. 
And so that's always the question is, is who is that 75th person? And I always like to think, now there's been a lot of debate and theories as to who that other person is, that additional person uh, that's counted there. But I'm reminded of this. I like to always go back to the beginning of chapter 46, starting at verse 3, where it says this, God calls to Jacob. And Jacob says, here I am. So God says this to Jacob, starting at verse 3 of chapter 46. I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. God reassuring Jacob as he's about to journey into the unknown, into the Egypt, into the place that's called, its name is called trials and tribulations. He might have had a great fear going down there, but God reaffirms his covenant with Israel, with Jacob, and he says, I will go down with you. Jacob has had some interactions with God. Physically, he wrestled with a man that was recognized by him and from our scripture and interpretation that he wrestled with God that presented himself as a man. And when God here says that I will go down with you to Egypt to be with you, how is it that we could ever presume that or, or think that that couldn't have been just another man that God actually came and physically met with Jacob and journeyed with him to Egypt? To go side by side with him. I think it's possible. I think Jacob could have known that element of God in the same way Abraham, uh, God appeared to Abraham as three persons. That Jacob could have had God appear to him as, as, as a man sometimes. And walk with him and be with him and be that encouragement to him. And I believe that physical manifestation of God is Yeshua is that Yeshua being the physical body of God, that when God wants to present himself as a physical man, it's in the form of Yeshua. So that's what I look and see, and so that's one interpretation. In fact, that's the personal one that I like when we have the testimony of the New Testament telling us that when Jacob went down to Egypt to be preserved and to be made a great nation, that Yeshua himself walked with him and was with him through every step of the way. I think we want to be, I always want to be encouraging to those that when you have a testimony of faith in the Messiah, that he walks with you, he protects you, he guides you, he's with you every step of the way. Even in, when things aren't going well, even when, the form of, when you're in famine, when you're depressed, when you're in sorrow, when it seems like everything is falling apart, the Messiah and God is with you to protect you, to guide you, and he, you were never alone in that process. And that even when you think something horrible has happened to a son or to a loved one, that there's, you never know with God when some sort of revelation could be that someone you thought was dead is truly alive again. Or that God can take something as terrible as a, as a, a son being thrown into a pit and sold into slavery and falsely accused and, and thrown into prison for a number of years. And that through those things... God can work a mighty miracle and, and perform a salvation for a great number of people through that process. God can use the testimony, a bitter testimony of, of trials and tribulations, and use that for the betterment and for the, the benefit of a great number of people, an immeasurable amount of people. He can use the testimony of a sinner to lead ten people to the Lord. That's what he can do, and we should never forget that. Never forget that that's what can happen. And so even through trials and tribulations, even through the loss of a loved one, 
we can always be encouraged and have the hope that God is using it for a mighty miracle and a greater blessing that will come. Maybe we don't know when. Maybe it's all in the Lord's timing. It's when He decides to reveal it to us. But He can use those things to be a benefit to us and an encouragement to us, knowing that God has His hand and His will surrounding us in everything that we do, and we're looking forward to all the future blessings that come from that revelation. Amen? Heavenly Father, we come before you on the Sabbath day. We thank you for your instructions, your teachings. We thank you, Lord, for your Torah portions, Lord. We thank you for the life of Joseph. We thank you, Lord, for his testimony that through one man, one man that was once at the end of his rope, so to speak, Lord, was able to be raised up. And through him and through his ability, Lord, and through your blessing and provision upon him, was his ability to save was immeasurable. And in the same way, Lord, you have done that with your son, Yeshua, who died, who paid the price for us. But because of that, Lord, his ability to save and the number of people who have a faith and belief in you because of that is immeasurable. So, Father, I pray that we stay encouraged as we read the stories of old, as we continue to follow along with the narrative of our ancestors, Lord, of Jacob as he goes to Egypt, and, Lord, as we soon turn to the book of Exodus and the great story of redemption and deliverance that you do for the children of Israel. May we always identify ourselves with those people. We thank you, Lord, for calling us from the nations, no matter where we come from, no matter what our heritage is or our identity is, Lord, there is a place at your table for us through the adoption of sons. And may we all find ourselves in the family of Israel and find ourselves one day in the bosom of Abraham. So, Father, we love you, we bless you, and we thank you on the Sabbath day for everything you do for us. And we thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. The blessing after the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, asher natan lanu Torah temet, v'chai alam natah betocheinu, Baruch atah Adonai, nonten ha-Torah amen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the Torah of truth and has planted everlasting life in our midst. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Shalom. I'm Eddie Chumney from Hebraic Heritage Ministries, and I am delighted to be here at Lion and Lamb Ministries this week and to be able to share with you thoughts and insights regarding this week's Torah, Half Torah, and Brit Hadashah portion. And so, this week's Torah portion is probably my favorite Torah portion. This Torah portion, as we have heard, is regarding Joseph revealing himself to his brothers. And for those of you who are probably familiar with me, the ministry, and the teachings, you normally see me teaching with the outfit that I am wearing right now. And so... Why is it that I wear this outfit virtually every time I do a public teaching? Because to me, this outfit represents Joseph's coat of many colors. This represents and it testifies of Joseph because I have a great love for Joseph. And my question that I have for you 
is, do you have a love for Joseph as well? There's a verse in Amos, in chapter 6 and verse 6, that says, For they are not grieved for the affliction or the hurt of Joseph. And so, if you look at the book of Genesis, it's 50 chapters. And starting in Genesis in chapter 37, and basically through the end of the book of Genesis, except for Genesis in chapter 38, where we have what appears to be an interruption of the story of Joseph, first with his dream in Genesis chapter 37, we have the account of Judah and Tamar. But after that, the story of Joseph continues and it basically goes through the end of chapter 50. So, why is so much of the book of Genesis speaking of and devoted to the story about Joseph that he has this dream and he tells it to his father, he tells it to his brothers and they don't like it. He gets thrown into a pit and it appears that from being thrown into a pit and going into Egypt that that which was promised to Joseph is impossible. It's not going to happen. But as we're told in the scriptures, the God of Israel had a plan for the redemption of the family of Jacob as it relates and pertains to the covenant that Yeshua actually made with Abraham in Genesis in chapter 15. And so ultimately then from the events that transpire in Joseph's life in Egypt, we have this week's Torah portion where because of the famine that's in Canaan, the brothers come to Egypt, and when they do, ultimately, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. Now, there is a major Torah principle that those things that happen to the forefathers foreshadow what will happen to their descendants or you might say biblical history is prophecy and because of this understanding that biblical history is prophecy and what happens to the forefathers happens to the descendants that's the reason why we have the selection of the Haftor portion which is Ezekiel chapter 37 verses 15 through 28 where there Ezekiel is told to take two sticks and to join them together and make them one. One stick represents Judah, his companions. Another stick represents Joseph and his companions. And so in the history of the nation of Israel after the rule and reign of King David and Solomon, that the nation of Israel was split into Northern Kingdom and Southern Kingdom. 
And ultimately, because of the sins of Jeroboam, who instead of going to Jerusalem as the Torah had commanded, he decided to set up his own worship of the God of Israel. And he mixed it with the ways of the people around him, mixed it with what's called Baal worship. And as a result, departed from God in his ways, in his Instructions, And so because of this, that ultimately resulted in the judgment of the northern kingdom where they were taken into Assyrian captivity. And then later, Judah was taken into captivity by the Babylonians. And so Joseph being separated from his brothers from being thrown into a pit is actually a prophecy of the separation in the future of the nation of Israel into northern kingdom and southern kingdom. And even as Joseph was reconciled with his brothers, the prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 37 verses 15 through 28 that even though northern kingdom and southern kingdom are scattered in the nations of the world and they were taken into captivity at two different times and they ultimately went there separate ways that the two sticks are going to be joined and they are going to be one. There's going to be a restoration and reunification of the family. And as Ephraim shared in his teaching on the Torah portion, he's explaining that Joseph as well, he foreshadows Yeshua. And the sufferings of Joseph foreshadows the sufferings of Yeshua at his first coming. And so, um, even though, and just like Joseph was not received by his brothers, Yeshua, when he came, he was not received corporately, and particularly the religious leaders, that they did not accept Yeshua, his ministry, his work, and that he's the Messiah, and the scriptures teach that in order to redeem Israel in the world, the Messiah had to die and be resurrected. But if you look at the deeper meaning of what went on here with Joseph, that Joseph, when he was thrown into a pit, he was regarded as being dead. But later in Egypt, when he reveals himself to his brothers, then all of a sudden, Joseph is resurrected. And so, at the deeper level, this is how the Torah is explaining um, about a separation of the family. And ultimately, there's going to be what appears to be death. But shockingly, when you think that all is lost... There's going to be resurrection because you remember the disciples of Yeshua, they were thinking that, oh, he's dead. What happened to his work? We were all excited about what was going to happen and now he's crucified and it seemed like all was lost and all of a sudden, three days later, he gets resurrected and there is great joy. There's great exuberance just like ultimately when uh, Jacob learned that Joseph was alive. Initially, he was shocked, uh, but then he was really comforted and really excited about it. And so these things are given so that we could understand 
the Messiah and we can understand the ways of the kingdom of the God of Israel. And so our Brit Hadashah or New Testament portion that's been selected here is Luke in chapter 6 and verses 9 through 16. Now, at the surface, um, it would look like that this New Testament portion is unrelated to the Torah and the half Torah portion because if we look at it, it says in Luke chapter 6 and verse 9, Then said Yeshua unto them, I will ask you one thing, is it lawful on the Sabbath days to do good, to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? And looking round about upon them all, he said unto the man, Stretch forth your hand, and he did so, and his hand was restored whole as the other. And they were filled with madness and communed one with another about what they might do with Yeshua. So how is Yeshua healing on the Sabbath have to do thematically with Joseph revealing himself to his brothers in the half Torah about the two sticks becoming one? It would seem like it's unrelated. And then continuing on in Luke chapter 6 verses 12 through 16. And this is an account where Yeshua chooses his 12 disciples. Once again, the choosing of his disciples. How, how does that relate to the Torah and the half Torah portion? Well, it relates in the way of going back to the verse of Amos and chapter 6 and verse 6. And the last part of the verse says, And for all these things, they are not grieved for the hurt of Joseph. And so, ultimately, what was Joseph doing as his brothers came down? He was testing them regarding their heart attitude. And after all these years, how did they feel about what they did? Is there any sorrow or regret because of what they did? And so Joseph put his brothers through a test. And the way that he tested them was through, do they have the same attitude toward Benjamin as what they did toward him? And ultimately, what Joseph, what caused Joseph to reveal himself to his brothers is because of Judah and what Judah did. And what is then the connection in Genesis chapter 38, where we have in Genesis 37 that. Joseph has these dreams, and why all of a sudden the interruption, we talk about Judah and Tamar? Well, basically, um, Genesis chapter 38 is an account where uh, Judah didn't measure up. Um, He didn't do what um, he should have did if he was responsible. And so, but here... um, Judah is the one that lays himself on the line. And so um, it's because Judah showed himself responsible. Uh, You remember uh, Reuben? Um, He was irresponsible 
because he tells his father, he says, uh, you know, uh, if, if I don't uh, uh, bring um, my brother back, then let my sons die. No, uh, you're supposed to be responsible as the firstborn in your family for the family and you have to be willing to lay down your life. You have to be willing to teach uh, the ways of the God of Israel and to bring them back to the Torah. And, and it's your responsibility, given the double portion, to lay down your life to bring about this family reconciliation. But Reuben didn't get it, but Judah did. And that is also a prophecy that at Yeshua's first coming, as a corporate people, the religious leaders, um, they did not see Yeshua being the Messiah. But ultimately, when we get to the end of days, the prophecy in Zechariah is they'll weep and mourn for him as a firstborn. And ultimately, Yeshua said that it will be said, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. So at some point in time, Yeshua is going to be welcomed by his brothers and we are going to have that great reunion of the family. And what's going to be the celebration of the great reunion of the family? It's going to be Yeshua setting his feet down on the Mount of Olives, setting up his kingdom, teaching the Torah to all nations, and we're going to have the nation of Israel ruling and reigning with him. That that family reunion is going to be celebrated forever and ever. And so ultimately Yeshua himself had a heart for Joseph. Because his ministry was centered in bringing back Joseph into the family relationship. And in doing so, he offered salvation to the entire world. Remember, John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And so Yeshua's work is for everybody, but was specifically directed toward restoring and reconciling the nation of Israel and the house of Jacob. And so we're told in the book of Hosea, in chapter 1, that Hosea is going to marry Gomer, and there's three children that are mentioned there as a result of this marriage. And the names of the three children are prophetic. And the first is Jezreel, which means God will sow or God will scatter. The second is Lo Ruhama, no mercy. The third is Lo Ami, not my people. And so the names are prophetic that the northern kingdom is going to be scattered into the nations of the world. And in being scattered, they're also going to be cut off from the covenant. We're told in Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 8 that a bill of divorce was given to the northern kingdom and being cut off from the covenant they're not going to be shown mercy and being cut off from the covenant they're not his people but there is a prophecy of restoration and reconciliation and it, and it says in Hosea chapter 1 and verse 10 that it will come to pass 
This is Hosea 1.10. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered. And it will come to pass that in the place where it was said, You are not my people, there will be said, You are the sons of the living God. That's the restoration of the family. You see, the God of Israel is grieved and hurt when there's division in his family, when there's separation in his family. And he wants his family to be whole and complete. Like any parents would want to have a whole and complete family. And they, they want the, the children um, and everyone to um, love each other and get along and, and be one. And so there's the prophecy of this restoration that they're going to go from not my people to sons of the living God. In other words, the God of Israel has a heart and a love for Joseph. He's grieved by the hurt of Joseph. And then there's going to be a restoration, reunification of the family. Hosea chapter 1 verse 11. Then shall the children of Judah and the children of Israel be gathered together and appoint themselves one head. And they shall come up out of the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. So how is this going to be accomplished? Through the redemptive work of the Messiah, and ultimately through Yeshua calling his disciples and teaching and training them. So now we're going to see and we're going to get the connection. And if we look then at um, where we see that Yeshua calls his disciples in Mark... In uh, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Now as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, and they were fishers. And he said, Come after me, I will make you fishers of men. Now there's a double meaning here when he's going to train his disciples to be fishers of men. And... So, the word man, taking it back into Hebrew, would be Adam. And I'm going to show you that Adam is a term for the nation of Israel, but Adam is also a term for all mankind, for all peoples. It has a double meaning. So, we're going to see first where the nation of Israel is called men. They're called Adam. And this is in Ezekiel, in chapter 34... And verses 30 and 31, where it says, Thus shall they know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and that they, even the house of Israel, are my people, says the Lord God, and you, my flock, the flock of my pasture, are men, are Adam. So, his people, the sheep of his pasture, are called men. They're called Adam. I'm going to make you fishers of Adam. I'm going to make you fishers of men. So you know that this is a term for all mankind. Because we have in the book of Genesis, the first man was called Adam. He represented all mankind. And so I'm going to make you fishers. Well, this goes back to Genesis in chapter 48. And so in Genesis, in chapter 48, when Jacob is going to impart 
the firstborn blessing to Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. That these are the words that Jacob used in Genesis chapter 48 and verse 16. It says, in the angel which redeemed me from all evil... And the word angel there is malak, it means messenger, and it's going to refer to Yeshua. Yeshua is the messenger of the Lord. He's the one that was sent by the Lord. And the angel which redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads, and let my name be named on them, and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. And here's what it says in the King James. And let them grow... Into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And I have a notation in my Bible that says that's not what the Hebrew says. The Hebrew says, let them increase as fish in the earth. And so, because that doesn't make logical sense, because fish don't multiply in land, fish multiply in water. So they didn't translate it literally, they translated it as let them grow into a multitude and not let them increase as fish. And so here... Ephraim and Manasseh, in their blessing, are likened to fish. And the nation of Israel is called Adam. So Yeshua, when he calls his disciples, he's going to make them fishers of men. He's going to teach them how to go out and fish for the exiles of Israel with particular Emphasis on the northern kingdom and Joseph. And in doing so, because the northern kingdom was assimilated in the nations of the world, that the message in the gospel of Yeshua, in order to make sure that um, we reach the exiles of Israel, because they've been assimilated, we have to actually share this message with everybody in order to make sure that we're reaching the exiles of Israel because the northern kingdom by the time Yeshua is here in the first century they had been exiled for over 700 years and so that was an, a lot of opportunity for intermarriage and so um, we look then in Jeremiah in chapter 16 in verses 14 through 16, we're talking about calling the apostles. And then Yeshua said that I'm going to make you fishers of men. So he's calling his disciples um, who are sent ones. His disciples are also apostles. They're going to be sent out into the nations and they're going to fish for men. Jeremiah chapter 16 verses 14 through 16. Therefore the days come, says the Lord, that will no more be said, the Lord lives that brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But the Lord lives that brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands where he has driven them. And I will bring them again into the land that I give their father. So it's a prophecy about the family being separated and exiled in the nations to be restored. And so what's the process? By which the family is going to be restored and reconciled. Jeremiah 16 verse 16. I will send for many fishers, says the Lord, and they will fish them. Who are the fishers that were sent? Well, Yeshua trained and among his disciples were literal fishermen. 
But spiritually, in his training of his disciples, he was teaching them how to fish for men. And so, literally, there were among the disciples fishermen. And so these fishermen were trained by Yeshua to go out and to proclaim Yeshua's redemptive work to the nation of Israel with particular emphasis on the northern kingdom. Because the Father and Yeshua has a love for Joseph. And this is why um, we're told, and we're going to uh, look at Luke and uh, chapter Luke. Um, in, uh, in, in chapter 4, um, we see here that in verse 16, that uh, Yeshua is uh, ministering in Nazareth. And um, as his custom was, he went in the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And then he quotes from Isaiah chapter 61. And part of the ministry of the Messiah is to preach the gospel to the poor. Now, the poor in Hebrew is ani, and it's a reference to those poor in spirit. Who are those that are poor in spirit? It's those who have departed from the Torah. So Yeshua's ministry um, was to bring back to the family those who have departed from the Torah and with Jeroboam and the northern kingdom, they had departed from the Torah. They had gotten cut off from the covenant, from the prophecy in Hosea, and was divorced in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8. And so now in Matthew chapter 4, in verse 13, it says, In leaving Nazareth, he came and he dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the seacoast in the borders of Zebulun and Naphtali that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people that sat in darkness, that means that departed from the Torah, saw a great light. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 23, the Torah is light. John chapter 8, verse 12, Yeshua is the light of the world. They saw the great light, that's the Messiah, and to them which sat in the region of the shadow of death. And, and so by departing from the Torah, the penalty is exile in the nations of the world. That light is sprung up. So this is a quotation from Isaiah in chapter 9 and verses 1 and 2. Now Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 and 2 is a prophecy of the... Next stage of taking of the northern kingdom. And so the initial taking of the northern kingdom was in 2 Kings in chapter 15 and verse 29. When Pekah, king of Israel, in his days came Tiglat-Pileser, king of Assyria, and he took various cities and among them all the land of Naphtali. And so this is in the Galilee area of 
Israel today. And so Isaiah 9 is prophesying that there's going to be a next wave, a next stage that the northern kingdom has got to go into captivity. It says that the dimness shall not be as was in her vexation when initially he lightly afflicted compared to what's coming, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the next stage, he's going to more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea. So Joseph is once again being afflicted. And that the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light, and they that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them light has shined. And so Messiah and his love to have restoration and reconciliation of his family, Joseph, the northern kingdom, was cut off from the covenant. And so he's going to die and shed his blood that once repentance is made, he's going to allow and make possible that they could come back into and be restored into the family. Through how? Through grafting. And so Yeshua is going to call disciples in order to go out to the exiles of Israel with emphasis on the northern kingdom. Remember, the gospel goes to all people. The emphasis was to bring the northern kingdom um, into that covenant relationship. To restore the family. And so then Yeshua's ministry is centered in the Galilee. The exact area where the northern kingdom was initially taken into captivity. And so now we're going to get to the other element and the other aspect of our Brit Hadashah. And that's Yeshua is healing on the Sabbath. So how does this relate and connect to it? Because ultimately we are told in the end of days when the... Exiles of Israel are going to be gathered and united by the Messiah. And we are told this in Ezekiel in chapter 34 in verses 11 through 13. It says, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, even I, will both search my Sheep and seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock in the day that he is among his sheep that are scattered. So will I seek out my sheep and I will deliver them out of all the places where they've been scattered. Now we're going to be told when it's going to happen in the cloudy and dark day. He's going to do it in the cloudy and dark day. And so what's a cloudy and dark day a reference to? It's a reference to the day of the Lord. And so, the Sabbath itself is called the Day of the Lord. And we find this in Isaiah, in chapter 58, in verse 13. If you will turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath the delight, the holy of the Lord honorable, and shall honor him not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words. So the Sabbath is my holy day. The Sabbath is the day of the Lord. And so, biblical history is prophecy. And so in creation, we're told that the creation took place over 
seven days. And the seventh day, the Creator, that's Yeshua the Messiah, John chapter 1, verse 3 and verse 10, Colossians 1, 15 and 16, we're told that Yeshua created the heavens and the earth. So when Yeshua created the heavens and the earth, when He said, let there be light, because the world was created by the word of the Lord, Psalm chapter 33, verses 6 through 9, that He rested on the seventh day. And so we have that each day in creation represents a thousand years of time. And so the Sabbath of creation, it foreshadows the thousand year messianic era. And so it's as we approach the dawn of the start of the thousand year messianic era, messianic times, that is when... Yeshua is going to gather and unite the exiles of Israel. And he's going to do it during the time that we call the Great Tribulation. And a cloudy and dark day. And so, when this happens, that the Jews are going to have to ask the question, Is Yeshua the Messiah? Or not, because they're going to witness Yeshua, and the way he's going to do it is in the form of the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, bringing the exiles back to the land. And so, as they see the exiles returning to the land, who's doing this? Well, it's the Messiah who is to do this. And so, um, we see when Yeshua then heals on the Sabbath, we have different accounts uh, in the Gospels of Yeshua healing on the Sabbath. So, one is John in chapter 5. And we see in here in John chapter 5 and verse 7. We're going to begin in verse 5. A certain man was there which had an infirmity 38 years. And when Yeshua saw him lie and he knew that he had been now a long time, he said, Will you be made whole? And the impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool, but while I am come, another steps down before me. Yeshua said, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made whole, and he took up his bed and walked, and the same day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said unto him, that was cured. It is the Sabbath day. It's not lawful for you to carry your bed. Now in the written Torah. Is there any commandment that says on the Sabbath day. You're not to carry your bed. No. This is the interpretation of the Pharisees. In the oral law. That they define carrying your bed. As work on the Sabbath. And so. What they were complaining about. Is that Yeshua wasn't following the Torah. As taught by the rabbis. But Yeshua is healing here somebody that's crippled. And in John chapter 9, he's healing a blind man on the Sabbath. And so we pick up in John chapter 9. And in verse 13... They brought to the Pharisees him that was blind, and it was the Sabbath day when Yeshua made the clay and opened his eyes. Then again the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight, and he said, He put clay upon his eyes, and I washed, and I do see. Therefore some of the Pharisees said, This man is not of God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath day. So 
How are they saying that he didn't keep the Sabbath day? It's because he told that he made clay. And so the Pharisees are going to interpret that that's work on the Sabbath. So, once again, the interpretation is what they call the oral law. The interpretation as taught by the rabbis. And so Yeshua did not see this as being a violation of written text. But because the Pharisees were taught that it's the rabbis that make the rulings and they speak for God. And this is how the rabbis interpret it. Then they accused Yeshua of not keeping the Sabbath. And so there's a deeper meaning here. Why is Yeshua healing a blind man on the Sabbath? Well, the blind man represents Jacob. In Isaiah, in chapter 42, it says in verse 18, Hear ye deaf and look you blind that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf is my messenger that I send? Who is blind is he that is perfect and is blind as the Lord's servant? And then it says in verse 24, Who gave Jacob for a spoil and Israel to the robbers? Did not the Lord he against whom we have sinned? For they would not walk in his ways, neither were they obedient to his Torah. And so the blind man here represents the condition of the nation of Israel for departing from the Torah. And it represents their status of being exiled into the nations of the world. But Yeshua is going to gather and unite the 12 tribes of Israel. When is he going to do it? At Messianic times. The Messianic times is called and associated with the day of the Lord. It's the prophetic Sabbath of creation. So therefore, Yeshua is going to heal the wound of Joseph. And he's going to heal the exile of the 12 tribes of Israel. He's going to end the exile. He's going to reunite, reunite the family when? On the prophetic Sabbath of creation, Messianic times, the day of the Lord. He's going to heal Israel of their spiritual condition on the Sabbath day. And when that happens, this is a prophecy that there's going to be a controversy among the Jews. And they're going to be asking, who healed the blind man? And how is he restored? And are we going to believe in him or not? And so there were those that because of Yeshua's healing that did believe in Yeshua. But the Pharisees, at least the religious leaders, did not. And so they asked Yeshua in John chapter 9 verse 40, are we blind? So John 10 is Yeshua's answer of are we blind? And in the answer he says that I'm the good shepherd. And the good shepherd's role is to gather and unite the twelve tribes of Israel. And he says in John chapter 10 verse 16, Other sheep I have, not of this fold. He was talking to Pharisees. He was talking to the house of Judah, the Jewish people. And he says, I have another fold. That would be the northern kingdom. Them I must bring. Why? Because they were cut off from the covenant. Because he has a heart for the hurt of Joseph. Yeshua has a heart for the hurt of Joseph, and he wants to see restoration of the family. They will hear my voice. There will be one fold and one shepherd. The two sheepfolds are going to become one, but Yeshua has to die in order to make 
this possible. Therefore does my Father love me because I lay down my life. So this is repeated in John chapter 11, verses 49 through 53, that there Caiaphas, being high priest that year, he prophesied that Yeshua would die for that nation. Who's that nation? The Jewish people. But then in John 11, verse 52, not for that nation only, but he would gather together and one the children of God scattered abroad. Yeshua is dying for two nations. Who are they? Northern kingdom, southern kingdom. Who are the children of God who are scattered abroad and who are to become one? Why? Because he wants to see a restoration, reunification of the family. That's why Yeshua prayed in John chapter 17, verse 21. I pray that they all may be one. He wanted to see a restoration, reunification of his family. What's the name of his family? It's the house of Jacob. It was the house of Jacob in Exodus 19, verse 3. That was at Mount Sinai. And Yeshua is going to rule over the house of Jacob forever. Luke chapter 1, verse 33. And he wants to see his family restored, reconciled, whole. And that's why Yeshua wept over Jerusalem. He weeps over, over the hurt of Joseph. And in the end, there is going to be a great family celebration. And the whole world is going to hear it, just like when Joseph was reconciled with his brother, Pharaoh in Egypt heard it. And so this is what we learn from this week's Torah portion and how it pertains to Yeshua and his ministry and how it pertains to us because we are waiting that great restoration and reconciliation of the family. And if you're like me, that you are looking for Yeshua to return, set up his kingdom, and we can live in his kingdom and rule and reign with him where he teaches the Torah to the nations. So I pray that this has been a blessing to you. Shalom in Yeshua the Messiah. Amen. And now we leave you with the ironic blessing. you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Shalom. Shabbat Shalom.